It was a good week this week. Um, I am praising the Lord. I thought it'd be appropriate to share up front. I'm praising the Lord for the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I, I hope that uh, we as Christians can unequivocally rejoice in what has just happened. Uh, this is the answer of many prayers, uh, prayers of churches all around the world, and especially in our nation. Um, we have prayed from time to time, maybe you've noticed, that uh, the government's laws would be good laws, that bad laws would be removed and good laws would be replaced. And so we praise the Lord for answered prayer. Uh, we need to celebrate this and rejoice in this. Uh, when I heard the news on, on Friday, um, I was excited. I, I privately, you know, here in my office, praising the Lord, I thought I got to do something with my family. I drove home. On my way home, I stopped at Albertsons and picked up a six-pack of cream soda and went home and said, kids, we're celebrating tonight. And they didn't know why, and I explained, and I you know, brought them up on some of the history and what was happening, and we talked a little bit about it. And after dinner, we went outside in the backyard, and we sat around, and we said, cheers. And we sang the doxology, the praising God from whom all blessings flow. We praised God. And we prayed uh, that not only good laws would be enacted in our land, but also changed hearts. That's, that's important. We don't only want good laws. Good laws are great. We praise God for them. We praise God for what's happened. But we are also praying for more gospel opportunity, more gospel witness, uh, more gospel transformation to be taking place. Uh, we pray that we as a church and Christians in general would be people willing to jump in and serve no matter what in any way to help the cause of fighting for the unborn. Uh, this is what we want to be known for as believers, as those who love God and love His image bearers and are willing to fight for their protection. Um, so we are praising God this morning and we're continuing to pray for the work that still is before us. And I hope that you can spend some time this week praising God and continuing to pray for more good things to happen and more gospel advance in our nation and around the globe. Uh, I just thought I wanted to add that on uh, before we jump into our final sermon in this cross series. We're wrapping it up this morning. If you're new, um, if you've been new in the last four months, you, you're coming in at a little bit of a time that's not as ordinary. It's not how we normally do things. Normally, we're just kind of working through a portion of the text. Uh, but the last four weeks, this week being the final of the four weeks, we've been studying a topic. We've been studying the cross of Christ and just kind of absorbing it all as much as we can to learn about the cross. Uh, we talked about on our first week the primacy of the cross. It's at the center of the universe that God has put it there that it might demonstrate His own glory. The second week we talked about the power of the cross. That the cross sets you free from sin. Sin's dominion. That you are no longer under sin but under grace according to Romans chapter 6. And then last week, we looked at the pattern of the cross. This idea that God has given us a pattern to follow. You know, how are we supposed to live in this world as God's people? Well, the pattern is Christ. But even more specifically, the pattern is Christ going to the cross. How are we to treat one another in our relationships? Philippians 2 tells us, that we should imitate Christ. We have that mind of Christ. That we are lower and less significant than anyone else. We humble ourselves like Him. We live for others and their blessing. And then how do we love people? Well, we love as God has loved us. Well, how has God loved us? He gave His Son. Christ gave His life up for us. That's how we love one another. So our relationships are imitating Christ. And our love, we're imitating Christ. That is the pattern that God has given to us as believers on how we ought to live. And now, we're concluding this four-week series uh, talking about the path of the cross. The path of the cross. To do this, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We preached Mark chapter 8 a few months ago, several months ago. And we encountered a saying of Jesus that is one of the harder sayings. 
And of the four weeks that we've spent thinking about the cross, I think this will probably be the hardest one. This is the part that gets left out of many gospel presentations. This is the part that many Christians haven't heard yet. Some churches don't like to talk about. We're going to be in Mark 8. We're going to start by looking at verse 31 to 34. Then we're going to jump around and look at several different passages that relate to this same theme that we're going to find here in Mark 8, verse 31. Follow with me as I read verse 31, and we're going to pause at verse 34 and unpack it a little bit. Verse 31, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's referring to himself, must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling to the crowd, or calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Pause right there. Jesus, in verse 31, is saying that he is going to die. He is going to suffer. He's going to be rejected by the religious authorities. He will suffer. He will die. And then, what is sometimes missed is the connection that that verse has with verse verse 34. Because immediately after describing his own violent death, it's right around the corner, he begins to call out to all there who would listen, his disciples and the crowd. Now if anyone wants to come after me, you want to follow me, you want to be my disciple, what do you have to do? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to die. If you want to follow me, get ready to die with me. That's what he says. I'm going to be rejected. If you want to follow me, get ready to be rejected. I'm going to the cross out of self-sacrificing love. If you want to follow me, get ready to do the same thing. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what we are all invited to. This call of Christ echoes throughout the centuries to all people in all times. This is what Christianity is. is an unreserved devotion to Jesus. And such devotion that is so great and strong that we are willing to deny ourselves and to even die, suffer, and be rejected if it means being faithful to Christ. My prayer has been, as we study this, we think about this theme that the Holy Spirit would grant us boldness. That He would make us a brave people. That He would free us. That He would set us free from the fear of rejection. The fear of suffering. The fear of being excluded that so often hinders our faithfulness in evangelism or outreach. I've been praying that God would grant us a deep joy that overrides these anxious concerns about what everyone thinks of us. And that we would understand a little more deeply what it means to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow Jesus in this world. Almost always it feels like reading uh, Pilgrim's Progress. just finished a more children's version with my youngest Jack, reading it before bedtime. And the author of this particular version likes to summarize kind of the theme of Pilgrim's Progress. He says that the story is about listening to the king's word, staying on the king's path, and seeking the king's city. Making it very simple for my four-year-old son to understand. And as I reflect on those things, I think that is really a great summation of what we're trying to do here, isn't it? To listen to what the king has said. To seek his city, but not only to seek his city, that middle one, to go on the path that he has laid out for us. And that path is the path of the cross. This is what you and I 
have been called to, every single one of us, all of us who are calling ourselves Christians, have been called to walk the way of the cross, to take up our cross, to get on that Calvary road with Jesus, and to go in that direction. And just like that story Pilgrim's Progress describes that there are temptations at every turn, there are people inviting us to get off that path of suffering, and get off that path of self-denial. There's greener pastures over here. It's an easier way over there. This way's too hard. Why don't you go that direction? There's always temptations to get off the cross, the path of the cross. And yet what we're going to see here that Jesus has invited us to this, that this is Christianity. This is what it means to be faithful. This is not some second-level elite Christianity only for the chosen few. That every single one of you, if you're calling yourself a Christian, that you too have been called to take up your cross in self-denial and in self-sacrifice and follow Jesus, whatever it may cost you. I wonder, I have a little bit of a hunch, that things won't be getting easier for Christians in the next decade. We need men with spine. We need women with resolve. We need to have grit. We need to be unflinchingly committed to walk this path, whatever happens to us as individuals or as a church. So I want to spend some time reflecting on three things we should expect as we walk the path of the cross. What should we expect as we walk the path of the cross? We're going to look at three things as we dive into the New Testament's teaching on this topic. First, when we take up the path of the cross, cross, we should expect to suffer. As we take up the path of the cross, you need to understand that you should be aware of the potential of suffering. Look back at verse 34 now again. We're going to reread that. And I want to read to verse 37. Mark 8, verse 34 to verse 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? Look at those words. Self-denial. And take up your cross. What does Jesus mean when He's describing these things? And this is something of great interest to you, isn't it? Because this is what it means to follow Jesus. Too many of us have been taught that the way to become a Christian is to get on your knees at some point in your life and hold your hands and pray a prayer and you ask Jesus into your heart. And I praise the Lord for those of you who are saved young and that was a genuine act of repentance and faith in Christ. But nowhere does the Bible teach that that's the way to become a Christian. The Bible teaches that the way to become a Christian is through two things, repentance and faith. Turning, that's repentance, from every other hope, every other treasure, everything else that would have our attention, every other thing, every other thing that would give us purpose in life, we turn from that and we look to Christ. And that's what faith is. We look to Him. We trust Him. We trust His Word. We trust His death. We trust His resurrection. All of these things, the work of Christ for our salvation, we're trusting our entire lives to Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. And so what does it mean to live a life of faith, repenting of and turning from every other hope? It looks like this. Self-denial and taking up your cross. What does it mean to live a life of self-denial? You can think of it this way. You can spend your life either as a grabber or as a giver. I think that's a good, simple way to summarize what Jesus is talking about here. You're either going to be a grabber or a giver. You can live your life grabbing attention, grabbing fame, grabbing comfort, grabbing pleasure, grabbing money, grabbing power. You can live for yourself, always trying to position yourself, jockeying for a better life. Or you can be a giver. That your life is oriented around something entirely different than you getting the best for yourself. You can devote your life to giving. Giving recognition to others. Giving encouragement to others. Giving comfort to others. Giving money to others. Being a person whose life's purpose is to glorify God by self-denial giving away. 
People often don't get recognized the side of eternity, but God is seeing it all and he recognizes it. So your whole life is either to be uh, given to or is either given to grabbing or giving. I think it's helpful to just kind of ask yourself, evaluate your last week. Is, is your life marked by this desire and this compulsion to give? Like I want others to experience blessings that I've received. So how can I give? How can I be there for someone? How can I sacrifice that their life might be better, that they might know Christ more, that they might be blessed by God through me? Or is your life more marked by grabbing for myself, positioning for yourself? The self-denial is saying, I'm not here for myself. I'm here to deny myself. I'm here to serve. Everything I do is meant to be an opportunity to build up my opportunities to serve others, to give to others. Your career, your time, your work. You realize all that stuff that God allows you to have ought to be something you use, like tools in your toolbox to bless other people? Or they can just be means of an end. They just, they just satisfy yourself. You grab them, you hold on to them, and that's how you live. When we follow Jesus, we are embracing the life of self-denial, the giving life, not the grabbing life. We repudiate the grabbing life, and we say we're here to live humbly and gladly for the joy of others, for the glory of God. But he doesn't only talk about self-denial. This is what it means to follow Christ, that we need to deny ourselves. But look at this next phrase. Everyone must take up his cross. See that? You see that in the text? This is what Jesus taught. That if you want to follow him, you need to take up your cross. What does that mean? This is a little bit of a different species of suffering than self-denial is. Jesus is saying, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be brutally killed. And I want you to join me on this journey that I'm heading on. This is an incredible thing for him to say, isn't it? I'm going to face this torturous death. And if you want to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to do the same. You've got to take up your cross and follow me in this direction. This is what he's meaning when he's talking about taking up his cross. We're going to follow Jesus. And there are going to be people who reject us. There are going to be people who hate us. There are going to be people who mock us and exclude us, rejecting our beliefs, rejecting our lifestyle, and excluding us from participation in normal society. This is what Jesus was facing. He says, get ready for the same to happen to you. Jesus made this crystal clear. There's no doubt. It's recorded in all the Gospels, these statements that Jesus said that if you follow him, there are going to be consequences in this present world. That anyone who's going to be faithful to Christ in this world, this world that is overrun by the enemy, anyone who's going to be trying to be faithful is going to face opposition and hostility. It's always been happening from the beginning of the world when Cain killed Abel and the prophets were murdered for preaching the truth of God. It has always been that those who are standing up faithfully for the truth are the ones who get persecuted. The New Testament is very clear, so, such that when Jesus stands up and preaches his first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things he makes crystal clear, he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, Jesus is anticipating this reality that some of you are going to be living righteous lives and you're going to be persecuted for it. And I want you to know when that happens, you're blessed. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Mark, or sorry, Matthew chapter 10, he says, if they have called, talking about these religious leaders and the people who hate him, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, if they've called me Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, they, they've already rejected Christ. How much more are they going to reject all his followers? The New Testament just again and again tells us this is what you should expect if you're going to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, a little bit further in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, listen to this one. He goes, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to bring peace on the earth. That rocks so many people's world right there. This is the purpose of the first coming of Christ, to bring peace. He says, don't think that. He says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come 
to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be so polarizing that commitment to me will divide families. That even close relationships will be broken up because some will be devoted to Jesus and some won't. And that will be splitting up even the very basic unit of the family. He goes on, whoever loves his father more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's so crystal clear, isn't it, church? That if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to be ready for people to reject you. You've got to be ready for people to look at you askance and not trust you. They look at you with the suspicion for the things you believe. Jesus is polarizing, isn't he? You know, we sometimes think if Jesus came and lived in 21st century America, then everyone would have loved him. You realize he would have been persecuted the same way he was back then today. He would have been rejected all the same by people just like you and I. Uh, sophisticated modern people. We'd never do anything like that. Oh, yes, we would. And that's what's happening in our world today. Christians around the world are experiencing this. So I want you to turn to Acts chapter 21. I like this little illustration of this reality in Paul's own heart in response to it. In Acts 21, Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. And a prophet, Jerusalem, mind you, you know, the same place that Jesus was put on that cross, Paul's on his way there. And a prophet named Agabus comes to warn him. This is in, we're going we're gonna to look at verse 13. I'm giving you some context here. A prophet named Agabus comes, warns him that there's going to be a lot of trouble if he continues on his way to Jerusalem. He warns him in a kind of graphic way. He takes off Paul's belt and he starts tying up Paul's hand, or his own hands and feet. And he says to Paul, basically, hey, listen, if you go to Jerusalem, let me explain what's going to happen to you. See this belt? See how it's binding my hands and feet? If you go there, this is what's going to happen to you. They're going to reject you. They're going to imprison you. Hey, they might kill you. Now, I love Paul's response. Look at verse 13. It says, and Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready. Mark those words. I love that. I am ready. I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, since he would not be persuaded. So you can't persuade me to stop. I'm not in this life for me. I'm not in there. I'm not doing this for comfort or fame or accolades or some measure of human achievement that everyone can recognize. That's not why I'm here. If, if I die there, if I'm in prison there, so be it. And they can't stop him. They can't persuade him. And so they say, let the will of the Lord be done. And you know the story. If you read the end of Acts, he ends up in prison. He ends up standing for kings and Caesar. And by the end, we know that what happened, Second Timothy was the last letter he wrote before he was executed. He knew what was happening, and he said, don't try to stop me, I'm ready. I wonder how many people in the American church today can say, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever's going to happen. Paul said, I knew what was happening when I signed up for following Christ. I knew what I was getting into. I wonder how many of us know what we've gotten into in following Jesus Christ. How many Christians can say, I'm ready. I am ready. I'm ready for the hate that might come my way. I'm ready for my neighbors to reject me. I'm ready for my co-workers to laugh at me. I'm ready to be left out. Are you ready? This is something we got to really wrestle with in our world today. Are you ready to be called names? Are you ready to be passed over for promotion? Are you okay with that? Are you ready to be considered a fundamentalist? Are you ready to be called a bigot? Are you ready to be misunderstood? Are you ready to be intentionally framed? Are you ready to be lied about? And some of you might be going off to college or you're already in college and you understand that if you hold to the Bible's teaching about gender, sexual ethic, that it's inerrant and true, that's the very Word of God, you are going to be a laughingstock. Are you ready? Are you ready to be the only one in the classroom that believes this stuff? To be considered stupid? Are you ready to be the one that's saying, no, this is true, this is the Word of God, I believe it? And to get laughed out of the room by your friends, your, even your professors. This is our world, isn't it? This is not just first century stuff. 
And some of you might dream about bringing the gospel to different places around the world. I pray that there are many of you who have this desire to see the gospel spread. Several months ago, we had the the Shantiers family here, missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Some of us got to hear some of the stories about what happened to them as they tried to bring the gospel to these people who didn't really want them there. Uh, The stories about spears and curses and trying to get them out of there and blame them for things they didn't do. Are you ready? Just this weekend, Mark Judson on his Twitter with 33,000 followers said this, I totally get why the Romans killed Christians now. It makes so much sense sense. This was his response to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Another account with thousands of followers posted the home addresses of all the Supreme Court judges, all the ones that voted to strike down Roe v. Wade, and the most popular comment underneath this post was a comment that included directions for making a homemade pipe bomb because they stood for an ethic that we find in Scripture. Christians, are you ready for this kind of stuff? Another pastor friend of mine said that there are probably going to be protesters at his church this morning based on what they believe about life. This is one of the many issues that if we hold to faithfully, we are going to be increasingly hated. That we become some a group of people that's standing in the way of the world getting what it wants. Are you ready? This is not a different country. This is not a different era. This isn't centuries ago. This is America this weekend. That there are some places that you could stand up for your beliefs in the Word of God and you will be threatened for it. You think it's going to get better in the next 10 years? What the New Testament makes very clear is that your salvation, Christian, is tied to suffering. It's actually tied together. They're, they're married. You cannot separate them. Philippians 1.29. I'll just read it to you. Follow in your mind, listening to me. 1.29. For it has been granted to you. That word granted in Greek is grace gift. It's something that's given to you by God. It has been grace gifted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Let that one sink in church that the gifts that God has given you are twofold. One, that you would believe in Him and therefore experience eternal life. But the second gift is that you would suffer for Him. And God sees that as a gift. We're going to talk about wine a little bit. Basically, all of 1 Peter is about this. Turn to 1 Peter with me. We're going to look at some of the, the verses, just three or four verses in First Peter about this. You know, Peter's writing to Christians who are exiles in this world. We all are exiles in a way, right? Spiritual exiles just passing through like pilgrims. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for to this you have been called. What have I been called to? For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. What have you been called to? You've been called to suffer like Christ has suffered. Following in His footsteps. You turn across to chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Think like Christ did as He suffered. Be prepared this way. Arm yourself. You need to be ready. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You know, side note, what's been strange is the last 200 years in America that there's been relatively no, relatively small amounts of persecution. That's what's strange. Because historically, Christians have been always marginalized and misunderstood from the very beginning. What happened to the prophets, what happened to the apostles, what happened to the early Christians, in every place, in every century, wherever Christians have gone, they've been opposed. Because the light has come and the darkness hates the light. 
What's been unique has been a small you know, blip on the radar screen of human history where Christians have had this kind of sanctuary in America the last couple hundred years. Listen, that's not going to last forever. We shouldn't be surprised about it either. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not strange if that happens to us. Which is why in Acts 14, when Paul and Barnabas are going back and visiting all the churches and encouraging these new church plants, what do they say? It says that they went strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Well, how did they encourage them and how did they strengthen them? Listen to what it says. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Is there any other way to get to the kingdom of God except through many tribulations? Much persecution. That's why Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't get more clear and succinct and straightforward as that. That if you want to be a godly man, if you want to be a godly woman, just ready yourself for persecution. Take up your cross. Be prepared. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. And remember last week, when, when we were talking about, in 1 Corinthians 1, where the wisdom of God is different from the wisdom of men. And it's tempting to think that if we're going to be so rigorously opposed all the time, then how could we possibly succeed? But we need to understand that the church, when it's weak, it tends to be much more dependent upon Christ. When we feel lowly, when we feel like we don't have... The upper hand. We look to Christ. The church advances in that way. We are all, in a sense, like seeds. That if there's going to be fruit born from our lives, that we need to die. Die to self. Die to the world. Perhaps even literally die in service of God. That's how we bear fruit. That's our first point. Our second point is this, that walking the path of the cross is the highest privilege. Now, don't you hear me saying that we ought to mope around, heads down, because, oh, poor us, poor Christians, we are going to be suffering all the time. I'm not advocating for a self-pity kind of Christianity. Woe is me for how hard it is. We're not asking for the pity of the world. We're not asking for the pity of one another. This is not what it means to be Christian. No, church, understand, it is your highest calling to take up your cross. It is the highest calling one, any of us could receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to, for Him to say, take up your, your cross, for us to come into that relationship with Him where we're walking with Him in that way. That is our highest privilege to be able to do such things. Uh, there's no self-pity in this. I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 14 now. Because I want to think about Jesus on his last night before he gets crucified. As we kind of studied this, we were looking so much at the darkness of the, the night. We looked at Judas' betrayal. We looked at the abandonment of the disciples. We looked at his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. We looked at his arrest. We looked at the way he was beaten up by the guards and mocked and ridiculed by them. He truly was a man of sorrows, wasn't he? He was acquainted with grief. But there's another element that I want to point out to you that we didn't focus on as much last, the last uh, months that we were going through this. I want to point out what's happening in verse 22. As he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he tells them about the bread and the cup. He says, this is my body, referring to the bread. But look at verse 23. It says, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. I wonder if you just caught that. And when he had given thanks. Here's Jesus talking about his own body being nailed to a tree. His own blood about to be poured out. His own life to be sapped out of him. And what does he do as he's talking about it? He gives thanks. He praises the Lord. He prays, he prays a prayer of thankfulness. This is an incredible reality here that he's on the way to the cross. He's thankful. It's sometimes called the Eucharist, the word Eucharisto, the prayer of thankfulness. 
And then you go a few verses later, he's describing that the blood, it's his blood. I mean, it's so, it's gruesome if you don't have a familiarity with biblical theology for him to be talking about his own blood being spilled out for many. And then you get ahead to verse 26. He just prayed a prayer of thankfulness. Look at verse 26. It says, and then they had sung a hymn. I mean, isn't it incredible of our Savior that as he's on his way to the cross, he's about to face arrest and torture, that he's praying prayers of thankfulness. He's singing hymns with his disciples. And then if you overlay this with Hebrews chapter 12, you understand why did Jesus go to the cross? The text in Hebrews 12 says he went for the joy that was set before him. He's thanking God. He's singing praises. There's joy in his heart. There is, yes, sorrow. Yes, there's agony in the garden. But deep down, there's this singing spirit. This joy that cannot be taken by, from those, by those around him. There's this deep gladness that he is obeying his Father in sacrificing himself to save the lost. I mean, could you ever imagine Jesus moping on his way to the cross? Head down, oh man, I can't believe my father's making me do this. Like some kid having to clean their room again. Can you picture him wallowing wallowing in his own self-pity? Banish the thought. He would never. He is gladly, willingly going to the cross. He is thankful to do it. There's joy in his heart. He will gladly lay his life down for the sake of glorifying his father and redeeming his people church we take our crosses up we put it on our shoulder and we hold our chins up high and we do it for the joy set before us because our greatest delight is to glorify our father in heaven and to lay our lives down for those around us and to love like christ has loved us so we see that attitude in christ himself it's also present in all the apostles let me just read a few verses to you and see if you could Pinpoint the phrase. That's kind of the key phrase in all these verses. Watch this. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. 2 Timothy 1.8 Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor about me, His prisoner, but share in the suffering of for the gospel by the power of God. Or 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Do you catch what's being repeated in all these? Rejoicing in Christ's sufferings? The, the apostles here see, this is fascinating, they see Christ, or they, they see their sufferings, And they call them Christ's sufferings. And then they urge us to rejoice that we get to share in Christ's sufferings. What does it mean, you know, Christ's sufferings? How is it that we share in His sufferings? We weren't there at the cross. How do we share in Christ's sufferings? Well, here's how. They killed Him. They put Him on the cross. He died. They buried Him. He rose again, and then He ascended into heaven, and they can't get to Him anymore. But Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us. Christ is present in the church. Christ is the head of the church. We are the body of Christ. Now, the same people who wanted to kill Jesus, the same people who wanted to eliminate his teaching, the same kinds of people still exist today, and they can't get to Jesus, so where do they go? They hate Christianity. They hate the truth that Christianity espouses. They they hate the things we live for. And so there's a sense in which that the people in attacking uh, Christians are attacking Christ. They're getting to Christ in the only way they can. Christ is not physically here, but His people are. We're going after them. And so to be suffering and to be persecuted by people who don't like Jesus, we are actually experiencing some of the same sufferings that Christ experienced. Our sufferings aren't atoning for any sins at all. That's not what's being said. But we are experiencing something like Christ did. Now turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul reflects on this a little bit and takes it even deeper and it's an incredibly powerful text 
I want to start in chapter 3, verse 7. After describing all his pedigree, all his gain, all the things he's accomplished. In verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. I want to lose everything. I don't mind losing everything if it means I gain Christ. Verse 9, and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now watch this. That I might know Him. That's what He wants. A deep, real knowledge of Christ. All of this. Take all away my gain. Take everything I've accomplished. It's all rubbish. Give it all away that I might know Christ and the power of His resurrection. And listen to this. And may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I might attain the resurrection from the dead. That word share, he's talking about sharing in the sufferings of Christ, is the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship or partnership. What he's saying is, if I lose everything and I suffer greatly, what actually happens is I fellowship with the sufferings of Christ. And I grow deeper in my experiential knowledge of Christ. I want to know Jesus so badly that if suffering enhances my knowledge of Christ, then bring on the suffering. I recently heard a, about a ministry started by Nancy Guthrie called Respite Retreat. Where couples can go and they can have a weekend retreat which is, that's a common thing, but this one's a little bit unique in that the couples who are invited to participate in this weekend retreat are specifically couples who have suffered the loss of a child. So they're invited to go and they're with a bunch of other couples that have a similar painful tragedy in their past. The whole idea is that when you have people who have shared stories and, and shared tragedies and shared grief, that they can actually comfort one another in a unique way, in a powerful way. When you can look at someone and say, I understand what you went through. I, I went through that too. And you can grieve together. You can weep together. You can encourage in a way that's deeper and more real because you understand the pain. And someone who's never experienced that to come in and speak to it. What, what's happening with Paul is he's understanding that the more I suffer for Christ, the more I am experiencing what He experienced, and the more I experience what He experienced, the deeper I can understand Him. The more I can know Him. My sufferings help me understand the greatness of the love of Christ. And so, if I have to suffer, I rejoice because in my suffering, I share fellowship in a more profound way with my Savior. I'm sure some of you know this in your own life, by experience. Was it the, the, the bright and sunny days of life that you really went deep with Jesus? And everything was going exactly according to your plan? Is that when you really grew? Or was it when everything began to crumble and life began to fall apart and people turned against you and you didn't have anywhere else to turn and you turned and looked at Jesus and you found Him there, a willing, ready Savior, able to help, able to get you through it, the only support you had, and you looked to Him and you trusted Him and He got you through it. And in the dark moments, you learned a little bit more about what it is like to walk with Christ. Really. This is what it means to share in His sufferings church. It is the highest privilege that we would ever be given to suffer for Him. It is not some obligation we mope about. Man, I want the eternal life. So I'll take that, and if I have to suffer along the way, I guess I, I'll take that deal. No. Oh Lord, if You call us to suffer, may we do so well. May we rejoice in it and share in the sufferings of Christ and say, I will gladly lose all if it means I can share in the sufferings of Christ that I might know Him. 
That's our delight, isn't it, church? That we might know Christ better. It's our great goal in life, to live for Him, that we might worship Him more sincerely. Richard Wurmbrand was converted to Christ while he was in communist Russia in the 1960s. As a Christian, he was imprisoned. And he wrote a book later on account, uh, that was an account of the harrowing, gut-wrenching stories of what they did to him and his fellow prisoners. Gruesome depictions of the sadistic methods of torture. He writes in this book, Tortured for Christ, I've seen Christians in communist prisons with 50 pounds of chains around their feet, tortured with red-hot iron pokers in whose throats spoonfuls of salt had been forced, being afterward kept without water, starving, whipped, suffering from cold, and praying with fervor for their communist guards. What makes a Christian like that? It's so bizarre, isn't it? They're, they're killing them, they're torturing them, and in the meantime, these Christians are praying for the good, praying for blessing upon their guards. Because in the darkest moments, Christ is drawing near. And these Christians are experiencing the communion and fellowship with their Savior. And it so satisfies them that they're not trying to retaliate. They want to bless. They want to bless. Read the stories of the martyrs. Read the biographies of missionaries. Let them tell you whether or not suffering for Christ is worth it. I mean, if we could like pull them all down from heaven. If we could get that great cloud of witnesses and stand them up here on the stage and interview them one by one and ask, you know, Peter, you know, you were crucified upside down for Christ. Was it worth it, Peter? Of course. John, you were exiled. They, they actually cast you out. They put you on an island all by yourself. Was it worth it? Of course. Early Christians, when you threw, they threw you to the lions, was it worth it? Yeah, I would do it all over again. And one by one, we could interview everyone. We could come up to Spurgeon and how he stood for orthodoxy, even though the entire Baptist union that he was standing for turned against him and kicked him out. Was it worth it to stand for truth? I think he'd have a belly laugh. I think he'd say, of course, we would not do anything else. Church, let's not buckle any under any kind of pressure. Let's say it's worthwhile to give our lives unreservedly and entirely to Jesus Christ, come what may. We stand on the truth. We stand on Christ Himself. The living God is our God. He's our warrior. We can trust Him. He is our refuge. And whatever the world throws at us, what will we say? Christ is enough for us. Take everything else away. Take everything else we have. Take our reputations. Take our jobs. Take our comforts. We have Christ. And that is all we need. The last point we'll make briefly is that this path is how we advance the Gospel. The cross bids us come into suffering. The cross and walking the path of the cross is our highest calling and our greatest privilege. But also, this is the only way to be faithful at advancing the Gospel. We will be evangelistic wimps if we don't take up our crosses. Because when we suffer with joy, we are proving that we have something more precious than life itself. What makes God look glorious is not when He gives me a lot of stuff. What makes God look glorious to the watching world is when all our stuff is taken away and all our comforts are removed and we say, God is enough for me. I will rejoice. God is enough for me. I will rejoice. 2 Corinthians 4 summarizes this. When he says, We're always carrying in the body of death, or in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. As we live in imitation of Christ's own death, the life of Christ is manifested in us. Those who persecute us, those who mow us down, those who reject us, when we do so with faith, with joy, we are proving that there is something more valuable than life itself that we have. And it causes the watching world to take notice. This is how Richard Wurmbrand in those communist prisons could say that even when they were being 
brutally tortured. It's, he, he wrote, we rewarded their torturer, our torturers with love. And we brought many jailers to Christ. You see, when the world sees we have nothing and yet we go around acting like we have everything, then what is it about you guys? That we have Christ. We have Christ. We have something you don't know about. We have something you can't see. Let me tell you about what Christ has done for my soul. If you're not a Christian. Best news in the universe that God is holy and God is love. And that God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. None of it. Because He's holy, He will punish all sin. But God is also a God of perfect love. And so, in His love, He sent His own Son to die on the cross to make the payment for the sins of the people who would never earn salvation themselves. And then Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive right now. Because God is a God of holy love, He offers salvation to anyone who would ever turn from the sins and trust in Jesus. And that you could be completely, entirely forgiven if you come to Him by faith right now. And what I would invite you to do is to begin living the life that God has called us all to live, is to take up our crosses and now begin walking with Him day by day, knowing that there is a joy in Christ much deeper than anything this world has to offer. Church, are you willing to take up the path of the cross? Do you really believe that though it will include suffering, it is actually our highest privilege? And it is God's way of advancing the gospel. I'm going to close with prayer and then we'll sing, Jesus, I, my cross, have taken. Which summarizes much of this theme we've been thinking about this morning. What does it mean for us to take up our own crosses? Yes, there will be suffering. The joy in it and at the end of it all will be entirely worth it. Pray. Oh Lord, it is so hard for us to imagine what You went through on Your way to the cross. And thus, it's hard for us to understand what it means for us to deny ourselves and take up our crosses and follow You. Lord, our greatest desire is to glorify You, to know You. And so Lord, we pray that whatever suffering You put ahead of us, whatever persecution or opposition, we ask that You strengthen us. You prepare us now. Grow us deeply. Rooted in Your promises and in Your truth. Give us boldness and bravery. And Lord, whatever happens, may we respond with pain. Or to pain and to suffering with joy. Because You are a treasure. In Jesus' name, Amen.